Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, a series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today I'll be talking about seven composers from Canada who are part of a generation with a fresh and original voice in new music. Those were extracts from two pieces by the Toronto-based composer Martin Arnold. Tam Lin, for melodica, improvising trio and eight-piece ensemble, played by Arnold himself on melodica, the trio The Draperies, and the ensemble Array Music. And Slew and Hop, for viola and cello, played by two members of Montreal's Bottini Quartet. And how different they are. Slew and Hop is a refined work with a gentle dance-like lilt, a bit like spaced-out Renaissance vile consort music. In comparison, Tam Lin, with which we began, sounds like a drunken sing-song in a pub, with, implausibly, a new music ensemble as backing band. Those pieces are recorded on one each of the two excellent portrait CDs currently available of Arnold's music, 
one on the Bottini Quartet's own label QB, and Tamlin on the American label Autumn Records. Martin Arnold is one of the most gifted and original composers presently working in Canada, yet his music, in common with that of the other composers I'll be playing today, remains relatively little known in Europe. I'll return to him at the end of this programme. You could argue, of course, that no Canadian composer of concert music is really well known in Europe, and my Canadian friends would point out that none of them are well known in Canada either. I suppose we might argue the case for R. Murray Schaefer or for Claude Vivier, but even their international reputations are tiny in comparison to Canada's best-known classical music export, Glenn Gould. Gould has some claim to be a composer, though of course that's hardly what he's best known for. To me, his most interesting creative work comes in the context of his radio documentaries, particularly one iconic programme from the late 60s, The Idea of North, which fixed a particular image of Canada in many listeners' imaginations. The watchdog's ducks and geese just fly around peacefully or sitting on the water. And I felt that I was almost part of that country, part of that peaceful surrounding. And I wished that it would never end. The mass media, which incidentally, the real truth about the North, the very far north, but where they do reach the far north, far north, supreme this is Glenn Gould, and this program is called The Idea of North. I've long been intrigued by that incredible tapestry of tundra and tiger which constitutes the Arctic and subarctic of our country. I've read about it, written about it, and even pulled up my Parker once and gone there. Yet, like all but a very few Canadians, I've had no real experience of the North. I've remained, of necessity, an outsider. And the North has remained for me a convenient place to dream about, spin tall tales about, and in the end, avoid. Born in 1932, Gould, were he alive today, would be in his early 80s. The composers I want to talk about in this programme are all from the next generation. Martin Arnold, with whom I began, belongs to what I consider a brilliant new phase of Canadian composition that has by now reached a sort of modest visibility. I'll be playing extracts from pieces by him and six other composers. In alphabetical order, these others are Alison Cameron, Cassandra Miller, Eldritch Priest, Mark Sabat, Shioko Slavniks, and Robert Wanamaker. These composers don't really think of themselves as a group, nor do they have any kind of collective name. But by virtue of their birth dates, they're a subset of what the Canadian author Douglas Copeland termed Generation X. Copeland's novel of that name, published in 1991, has the subtitle Tales for an Accelerated Culture, and it focuses on the life and times of young adults in the late 1980s. This is the generation I want to talk about today, the one born between roughly the beginning of the 60s and the beginning of the 80s, after the generation of post-war baby boomers. Generation X is an interesting concept as long as we don't take it too seriously. Douglas Copeland himself was appalled by the attempts by corporate America to petrify the idea and turn it into some kind of stupid marketing slogan. It has a personal resonance for me because it's the generation to which I myself belong, a generation that grew up with modern devices such as colour TV, the cassette tape and the answering machine, but not yet the internet, the mobile phone or social media. Supposedly, we're a restless bunch 
sometimes even cynical, but with the belief in higher education as a means to personal advancement. We are more heterogeneous in outlook than preceding generations, and we embrace the idea of social diversity and rights for all. Our era coincides with such phenomena as the rapid growth of MTV and video games, and the transition from colonialism to large-scale globalisation. Oh yes, and we experienced the gradual dissolution and loss of prestige of the entire musical avant-garde that may be relevant here. Before we get too deeply into the music, though, I should offer a few caveats. First of all, I'm only talking in this programme about composers from English-speaking Canada. I hope to make another programme about the francophone scene in due course. Second, I could of course easily have included many more than seven composers, but I've limited the number in a vague attempt to keep things manageable. These are simply seven composers whose music I know and have been enjoying for some years now. Third, although all these composers were born in Canada, the nature of their Canadianness is different in each individual case. For one thing, only three of the seven are presently living there, and some have lived away for quite a long time. And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that these composers form some kind of Canadian school. What I am claiming is that, despite a considerable diversity of techniques and aesthetics, when regarded collectively, they turn out to have commonalities that seem worth exploring, and offer something different from the new music currents coming from Europe, or from Canada's neighbour south of the border. Above all, and perhaps most importantly, these are seven voices with new and interesting things to say.
That was the beginning of Bel Canto for Seven Musicians by Cassandra Miller, composed in 2010 and performed by Montreal's ensemble Core with the singer Marie-Annique Belliveau. An astonishing piece, very beautiful and, to my ears anyway, rather unsettling. Part of the inspiration was a recorded source, an aria from Puccini's opera Tosca as sung by Maria Callas. The mezzo-soprano in this piece is asked to mimic the charisma, inflection and liberty of Callas's voice. The opening phrase, with its falling cadences, is like a found object, being not so much developed as reiterated or looped, but with its instrumental background constantly changing and becoming ever more melancholy. The music, fully notated in every detail, offers a juxtaposition of the found and the invented. In a recent article on Cassandra Miller's work in the journal Tempo, fellow composer James Weeks points out the connections between some of her compositional practices and recent developments in the parallel medium of film, particularly the way in which film editing constructs reality for the viewer. This is relevant also in considering one of Miller's even more recent pieces, Philip the Wanderer, written in 2012 for the UK-based pianist Philip Thomas.
That was the second part of Philip the Wanderer by Cassandra Miller from a live performance in Montreal by Philip Thomas. That strange whistling you heard towards the end, by the way, came intentionally from the page-turner, who functions here as a ghostly second performer. There's a feeling of exaltation in this music that is very stirring emotionally and utterly different from the mood of bel canto, that is, if you hear the two pieces in roughly the same way I do. But this exultant feeling comes less from a desire on Miller's part to express such an emotion as it does from the source material the piece is based on, a recording made in the mid-1950s of the Mozambique Mbira player Zuake Masingi. We might say that the exultant feeling is inherent in the original music, and that, in finding a viable way to work with the material in her own terms through the medium of solo piano, Miller has managed to retain this quality. She has made changes to the tuning of the original, has revoiced and thickened many of the chords, and introduced octave displacement to some of the melody notes. She's also added a certain amount of additional material. But apart from all that, she says, the music stays close to the original source. Philip the Wanderer, finally, has relatively little to do with African music, or at least less than it does with Miller's own earlier work and her individual palette of compositional practices. The old-fashioned colonial model of the Western composer confronting an exotic music doesn't apply here. As Miller points out, the medium of solo piano was every bit as exotic for her as the music of Mozambique. We might generalise this point, as it seems to me one of the characteristics of Generation X. Rather than composers born in the West inheriting a so-called Western art music tradition as a sort of birthright, we're looking instead at a proliferation of what might be called micro-traditions, with each composer individually defining who they regard as their precursors and evolving a set of normal habits and practices for him or herself. Miller, in a blog entry on her website cassandramiller.wordpress.com, pulls no punches when she states clearly her own attitude to conventional constructions of the Western art music tradition. The economy of contemporary music often functions in colonial, classist, racist and sexist ways, she writes. The defining characteristic of art music is not that it's the most creative or most experimental music in our culture, but rather that the term indicates a genre whose boundaries are defined, almost exclusively, by colonialist and classist notions. I allow myself to eat up the beauty that comes from that tradition, as I eat up all sorts of other musics as well, but I also allow myself to reject the nonsense that comes with the social economy of this scene. Unquote. If we define a generation not simply according to birth date, but as a socially cohesive group whose members share broadly similar attitudes and cultural reference points, then the Canadian composers who are the focus of this programme share some conventional similarities as well. One is that, in common with ever-increasing numbers of young composers these days, they all went through fairly prolonged periods of contact with musical academia, the majority to PhD level. More important, perhaps, is the impact of certain teachers encountered along the way, the example of whose work provided important stimuli. Martin Arnold and Alison Cameron both studied with the Czech émigré Rudolf Komarus, who was an important influence on a number of composers of this generation. So too was the rather better-known James Tenney, who taught at York University in Toronto between 1976 and 2000. Tenney brought with him to Canada the whole legacy of American experimentalism. Dozens of gifted young composers studied with him during those years, in some cases relocating from far and wide to do so. No fewer than four of the composers in this programme may be counted among them. One such 
was the Toronto-born but now Berlin-based composer Chiyoko Slavniks. What was most striking to me as a young composer just starting out was Tenney's incredible rationality, his ability to clearly explain principles and everything else he was interested in, his candidness and openness, his contagious enthusiasm, and his generosity with time. Jim introduced me to the concepts of sound as material, the mathematical, acoustical, physiological principles underpinning its consistency, and form as something that could be created by controlling or shaping its parameters over time. These principles became intrinsic to Slavnik's composing methods and informed such works as this one, her string quartet, Gradients of Detail, from 2006. The beginning of Gradients of Detail by Chiyoko Slavniks, from her portrait CD of that name on the World Edition label, played there by the Asasello Quartet. That piece concerns itself with sustained tones and glissandi, and is notated in a time equals space notation, with the microtonal tunings precisely indicated in the score, both graphically and in exact numbers that show the degree of deviation from tempered pitches. 
This way of working follows the practice of her teacher James Tenney. But one of the ways this and other of her works depart from Tenney's practice is Slavnitsch's increasing use of her talents as a visual artist in devising aspects of the material of her musical compositions. Several of her pieces over the past ten years or so have been sonifications of her drawings, their shapes transcribed, often quite literally, into musical notation. The elegance of these images has meant that visual art has now become almost a parallel vocation for Slavniks, with her drawings now sometimes being exhibited in conjunction with performances of her music. This sonification process leads her to an unpredictable musical syntax, where a piece seems to follow a logic different than a conventional one. She writes mainly for acoustic instruments, with the occasional use of electronics, notably of sine waves, which, among other things, enable her to construct and sculpt the acoustic phenomenon of beats, interference patterns created by tones very close but not quite in tune with each other. You heard this phenomenon already in the string quartet, and it's clearly apparent in the electronic beginning of her recent orchestral work Materia Immateria, premiered in 2013.
the beginning of Materia Immateria by Chioko Slavniks, from its world premiere performance by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Ilan Volkov. Another composer who studied with James Tenney in Toronto is Robert Wanamaker, who presently teaches at the California Institute of the Arts. I asked him what being a Canadian composer means to him today, after living outside the country for 13 years. While I was in Canada, Wanamaker told me, I rejected the nationalistic provincialism sometimes promoted by the Canadian state at that time. My attitude in this regard has not changed. Nonetheless, I do think that place affects the artist in profound ways. The sounds that are always with me, wherever I am, are the sounds of the rural north, where I grew up. Wanamaker studied science and mathematics alongside his musical pursuits and found a kindred spirit in Tenney, whose love of precisely quantifiable and yet perceptible processes in music made a strong impact on him. Wanamaker's training as a scientist and mathematician was also hugely important, he says, both in a technical and an aesthetic sense. He became interested in the aesthetics of experimental design and of acoustical and psychoacoustical test signals, which were not considered by their inventors to be music. Wanamaker says, though, that, quote, the meticulous non-expressive design of such sounds in order to reveal aspects of the perceiving self interested me, and I recognised a similar project in certain works of Tenney, unquote. Here's an extract from his I Want to Tell You Something, a piece of algorithmic computer music composed in 1999. It begins from a single sustained tone, which is gradually joined by all the other tones commonly used in the audible range of music, resulting in a texture that ironically sounds a lot like continuous noise. We'll pick it up a couple of minutes in.
three and a half from the nearly ten minutes of Rob Wanamaker's I Want to Tell You Something from 1999. Whatever the apparently objective, even austere way the piece was constructed, the work nonetheless has a poetic dimension, a personal one for the composer. I don't know if there's anything specifically Canadian about it, he remarks in answer to the rather dumb question I asked him, but it perhaps evokes a sense of the self's smallness before the elements that is potent for someone from the rural north. Another young composer who was decisively influenced by his work with Tenney is Mark Sabat. Born in Kitchener, some 90 minutes drive to the west of Toronto, Sabat grew up there, in Peterborough and in New Brunswick. He went on to study mathematics, composition and violin at the University of Toronto, violin at the Juilliard School in New York, then lived and worked for a time in Newfoundland and in Toronto before relocating to Europe in 1997, settling in Berlin two years later, where he's been based ever since. Quite apart from his activities as a composer and a performer, Sabat has extended Tenney's theoretical investigations into the nature of perception, of pitch perception in particular with a number of empirical studies and research papers that are freely available on his website, marksabat.com. But it was as a composer that his work first attracted me, in particular his profound interest in just intonation, the tuning system employed by many cultures worldwide, but abandoned in the European classical tradition in favour of tempered systems. Just intonation was reanimated in the work of American composer Harry Parch, beginning in the 1930s, and his explorations inspired younger figures like Lou Harrison, Ben Johnson and Tenney himself. Sabat's own approach to just intonation is both theoretically rigorous and immensely practical. He has the best ear for tuning of anyone I've ever had the pleasure to work with, and as a violinist he can realise even the most subtle and intricate passages of his own music in performance. His Opus 1 is a piece from 1993 entitled Three Chorales for Harry Parch, for violin and viola, a compelling slow-motion exploration of a sonority characteristic of the music of Parch. It's a complex chord that piles up the subharmonics below a fundamental, going as far as the 11th subharmonic. This is an early manifestation of one of Sabat's central compositional concerns. Tuning relationships move centre stage, and become the material of the music, not simply the language in which the material is expressed. Here's the second of the three chorales for Harry Parch, from a live performance by the violinist Malcolm Goldstein, with Sabat himself playing viola.
That was the second of the three chorales for Harry Parch by Mark Sabat. As with the other composers in this programme, Sabat's output is recognisably all of a piece, but his work does not conform to a single style, nor can it be summarised by a single descriptive adjective. Here's a much more recent piece, which shows clearly the development his language has undergone since the early three chorales. It's from a string quartet entitled Euler Lattice Spirals Scenery, completed in 2012, and is another of his works in which, as he says in the programme note, musical forms emerge as consequences of explicitly notated intonation. Here's the whole of the quartet's third movement, entitled Harmonium for Claude Vivier, a homage to an older figure of some importance in Canadian music. The dedication is appropriate in that Sabat, like Vivier, is concerned with melody, here with melodies that arise from high natural harmonics, which are left untempered with all their microtonal inflections intact. The music seems to proceed skywards as it progresses, and Sabat creates, in the interplay of these high partials, a kind of ecstatic singing.
That was Harmonium for Claude Vivier, the third movement from Mark Sabat's string quartet Euler Lattice Spirals Scenery in a live performance in Berlin by the Sonar Quartet. As is probably clear by now, the music of most of the composers I've played in this programme manifests a keen interest in a form of exploratory or experimental music theory, building on conventional ideas but pushing forward into largely uncharted territory. I wouldn't want to say that's necessarily a characteristic of Generation X, as there are plenty of other composers out there who seem quite content with the status quo, it's just that I haven't included them in this programme. An interest in a quite different kind of theory, one stemming from literary criticism and interdisciplinary writing with roots in philosophy, informs the work of composer Eldridge Priest, born in Canada's Yukon Territory and now living in Montreal. Priest was active in Toronto's experimental music scene in the late 90s and early noughties, and he credits that scene for having helped nurture his radical compositional conceptions. Besides composing, Priest has written extensively about new music, particularly the experimental kind, and in 2013, Bloomsbury published his book with the marvellous title Boring, Formless Nonsense, Experimental Music and the Aesthetics of Failure, a relatively rare example of writing on experimental music penetrating the mainstream publishing world. Priest feels that his commitment to experimentalism has a certain connection to his situation in Canada. Being a composer from there makes him, he says, gloriously provincial and thus flush with a healthy irreverence for the art music tradition. He means this at least partly ironically, a feeling that he shares with certain other Canadian artists of his generation. There's a robust reflexivity among my immediate peer group that treats concerns about arts and music's supposed greater role in the world with serious suspicion. However, I think sometimes that this skeptical attitude obscures what's actually a very critical perspective, or what I feel is more like a hypercritical disposition that can get really interesting when its underlying cynicism is intensified and transformed into something more like radical doubt. Priest's music is as diverse and multi-layered as his written texts. Here's one, perhaps not atypical example, a passage from his 2008 composition Glossolalia for flute, bass clarinet, violin, contrabass and vibraphone.
That was part of Glossolalia by Eldritch Priest from a live performance by the Motion Ensemble. The first Canadian composer of this generation I ever met was Alison Cameron. I first encountered her years ago when she was studying in Holland. Her teachers in Europe included Louis Andriessen, Per Norgard and Frederick Shevsky, and her teachers in Canada included Rudolf Komarus and James Tenney. Cameron's early music shares some of what is generally thought of as the streetwise aesthetic of Andriessen, with several works using a hybrid of rock and contemporary classical instrumentation. Here's the opening of one of her early works, A Blank Sheet of Metal, composed in her mid-twenties.
the opening of Alison Cameron's A Blank Sheet of Metal from 1987, from her first CD, Raw Sanguro, played by an ad hoc group of Toronto-based musicians conducted by James Tenney. That piece made quite an impression at one of the early Bang on a Can festivals in New York, where its energetic rhythmic language and rock-inflected instrumentation was very much in keeping with the musical image the festival's organisers wished to project. And yet, to her credit, I wouldn't say that A Blank Sheet of Metal is particularly representative of the direction Cameron's work has taken since then. In Toronto over the years, she created a number of performing and commissioning initiatives, both for herself and for others, including the Drystone Orchestra, which she co-founded in 1989, and the Arcana Ensemble, which she founded in 1992, both dedicated to the performance of experimental music. Between 2000 and 2005, she was artistic director of the ensemble Array Music. These activities kept her closely in touch with a very broad range of musical aesthetics, and her compositional output has remained dynamic, not stuck where it began. She's also active as an improviser. Here's part of a recent recording by the Alison Cameron Band, a trio founded in 2007, to work on her compositions based on traditional folk music, creating new music from old sources through a variety of techniques, sometimes partly by erasing the originals and writing over them. This is part of a track entitled Mach Schorn. Ending of Mach Schorn by the Alison Cameron Band. This piece falls broadly into the same camp as some of the music of the composer with whom we began, Martin Arnold, and I'd like to end with a piece by him. Arnold's musical life has been centred on the Toronto scene for many years now. In common with Alison Cameron, he too directed a new music ensemble, the Burdocks, which commissioned works from various composers and played some of his own pieces and thereafter he curated and administered an experimental music series and a CD label called Rat Drifting. Partly what I like about Arnold's compositions is their very unusual approach to form. They never seem in a hurry to get anywhere. He himself has used the term meandering to describe his approach, a word that would normally have a rather pejorative ring, but as applied to his music it has a welcoming resonance. The feeling I get from his pieces is that there's world enough and time to listen to and enjoy his sounds, 
rather like listening to a good storyteller when an evening seems to have an elastic quality and you lose track of how late it's getting. Here's part of a recent piece called Annie's Lammy for one live performer on voice and banjo and recordings, in this case four different recorded versions of an old Scottish ballad. The recordings are edited to make them roughly in sync and in tune with each other and the result is then fed through a vocoder and a noise gate. The live player improvises, or semi-improvises, on banjo and also whistles. This is an extract from the premiere given by Arnold himself at the Array Music Studio in Toronto in June 2013. It's very hard to know how to describe this piece other than as a kind of experimental folk music. Part of Martin Arnold's Annie's Lammy in a live performance by the composer. 
The seven Canadian composers I've discussed in this program show diverse faces of a generation that is still continuing to develop and to make waves on the international new music circuit, and it's impossible to predict how their music will evolve from here. Knowing them as I do, I can't imagine any of them would take all that seriously their status as representatives of Generation X in Canadian music. Perhaps a better collective term for them is the equivalent of the term Generation X in France, where they would be described as belonging to la boeuf génération. Generation whatever. <laughs>